morning, church. I want to welcome you again to worship. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me in the Bible to Romans chapter 8. Whether you have a print copy like I have in my hands or whether it's a digital copy, if you just have a phone with you, then perhaps you would just open Google and type in that Google bar, Romans 8 colon 18. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. That'll take you right to this passage of Scripture. That's important because I want you to see I'm not making this up. This is the Word of God, and and that's the most important thing that you'll hear today. While you're finding your place there, I want to just speak to you as a pastor, as a shepherd for a couple of moments. There's some things you need to be aware of. One of those is taking place tonight at 5 p.m., We're calling it Revive Night, but I want you to understand what this is. It's just simply a night of worship where we as the body of Christ are gathering together to sing some of the songs we sing regularly on Sunday morning, to pray together. We'll open God's Word, just spend some time in His presence, about 90 minutes of worship beginning at 5 o'clock this afternoon, and it's called Revive Night. I hope you'll be here. It's right back in this room. You don't want to miss it. Two weeks from today, we've got another special day in the life of our church. It's something we do every year. It's called Harvest Sunday. It too has a specific meaning. This is a day where we ask everybody to be a part of giving generously to the ministry of our church. Now, there are a lot of folks who do this on a week-in, week-out basis. But some folks never get involved in, in the generosity aspect of our mission here at Mission Hill. Your giving makes a difference and allows us to do the ministry uh, that we do on a 24-7 basis, 365 days a year. But the reality is sometimes we need a a special focus on that. So on that day, we're asking that everybody gives something. Now, if you're a family like mine, we were paid this week, and, and so we believe in giving of our first fruits. We give of the tithe as a beginning place, so we take 10% of our gross income, and that's where we start in our giving. We do that each and every time God blesses us with income. Some of you are not there yet. Maybe giving to a church is not something that's been a part of your life practice. I would just encourage you to start somewhere, and particularly in two weeks on Harvest Sunday, to give something. Here's the reality. As we look toward the end of the year, we need a week where we get about $120,000 to prepare us to do the ministry that we have around Christmas and to end the year strong. That's about three times a really good week for us. So the only way we get there is through sacrificial, generous giving from folks just like you. So thank you in advance for that. Romans chapter 8. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 18. But first, one of the most familiar verses in Scripture. Read this with me, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. It's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. You may have it on a cross-stitch painting on your wall. You may have it on a coffee mug. It may be on a pillowcase. I don't know. It's one of the most familiar, but it can be one of the most frustrating. Sometimes you look at your life and you say, I don't get it. God's not working for my good. This doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes you want to cry out to God and, and you want to say, I don't understand. Why is this? What are you up to? It's not uncommon to find yourself at that strange place between the cry we hear in scriptures. I I believe, help my unbelief. 
I'm living in faith, but I, I feel faithless at the moment. And for a lot of people, that's where they stop their faith journey. They don't understand what God has done. And, and so they make the logical decision, since God is not meeting the needs the way I wish he would, then he must not be real. As we've said, as we've journeyed through Romans, they make the mistake of basing their faith not on fact and, and not on what Scripture has said, but on the feelings of the moment. That's what many in our society are doing it today. They call it deconstructing their faith. They, they say they've come from a place where they had an understanding of what it meant to be a follower of God, and yet the circumstances of life or the culture around them have, have caused them to say, surely this must not be true. They look at their lives or they look at history, they don't see God or, or sense his presence, so de they determine he's not real. In fact, suffering is probably the number one reason that people walk away from their faith. Just think how, how they're construing this in their mind. Life has seemed difficult, unfair. God hasn't intervened. So does he really care? Is he, is he real? Jerry Seinfeld has a show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. He interviews different individuals. And in his interview with Ricky Gervais, an atheist, he asked him if he ever prays. Gervais said, no, why would I ask God to help me find my keys if I believe he stood and did nothing during the Holocaust? And that's the way a lot of people arrive at their understanding of God. If God's not working things out the way I think they should be worked out, then maybe he's not even there. Maybe he doesn't even care. He must not be real. We're going to deal with that some, but before we do, I want to remind you of the totality of Scripture's teachings about God and how he comes to a point of our understanding what he's up to. Proverbs 25, 2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Did you catch that? In other, in other words, we're not always going to understand God. Isaiah 45, 15, truly, you are a God who's been hiding himself. Sometimes we're going to feel like God's not around. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Perhaps the most familiar one, Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, lest you hear this and be discouraged and, and think, well, how could I ever know God enough to trust him? How could I ever wrap my mind around a God who doesn't want me to know what he's up to. Let me remind you how scripture teaches this whole thing ends. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, it says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You see, the faith life or the person that runs after Jesus is that balance between now and then. Uh, understanding that there's more to this life than what I see right now. There's more that I'm going to experience than, than what I'm experiencing right here. Uh, the, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And sometimes on this side of heaven, we never understand what God is up to. And sometimes we never will.
But Romans 8 gives us some theological and, and scriptural foundational understanding to, to help us navigate what we do when it seems like God's not making sense. So I'm going to read that, but first let's pray once more. So Father, in the name of Jesus, speak. Into our hearts, Lord, speak. Into our ears, Lord, speak. Into our mind, oh God, speak. We desire to hear from you, and we're listening. So, Lord, let the words of my mouth and even my thoughts be pleasing to you. And may we walk away with a clear understanding of your redeeming power. May you redeem this time for our good and your glory. And may you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I, this is Paul, consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so in this very first word, we see two certainties. The certainty of suffering. There will be suffering in this world. You, you will face things that you don't understand. There will be things you encounter that seem unfair. Scripture makes that clear, but the flip side of that coin is that that is not all there is. There is more to the story. In fact, it calls it glory. You, you could look at this whole passage and, and you could see it as a description between our groans to God's glory. We live between that which is not yet and that which is already. That's what the kingdom of God is. We know the king is coming and his kingdom will be fulfilled, but we also understand that if we're followers of Christ, we're part of the kingdom of God. As Christ followers, we understand we're in this world, but we are not of this world. We will experience pain in the present, but we have the hope of a future glory. Look at verse 19. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who was subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. Now, what is that all about? Paul's taking us back to something he taught us in chapter 5 and verse 12. Let me just read that to you so that you can be reminded. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. What's he saying? God created a perfect world. That's the beginning of the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he went on this six-day creating spree where everything he touched was magic. It was fire. It was good. And God created everything and said, that's good. And then he created man and woman. He said, oh, no, that's really good. And then he took man and woman, the crown of his creation, and he placed them in his creation, 
paradise, the Garden of Eden. And he said, you can do anything you want to in here except this one thing. Leave this one tree alone. You got it? They said, got it. He said, good. And, and so they began to live life in paradise, God's created beings. But then something bad happened. Our first parents sinned. They broke God's law. They did the one thing. Say one thing. They did the one thing he said, don't do. And sin entered this world. And as a result, we believe in our church and this doctrine that's called original sin that says because of that sin, the sin of our first parents, we are born with sin. And just like that sin of our first parents separated them from God and caused paradise to be broken and lost in our life because of that sin that we're born with, we're separated from God and life doesn't seem like paradise. Now the good news is we've seen God's remedy to that. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, what we celebrate and remember as Christ's followers is that Jesus took the penalty and the punishment for our sin so that he could turn around and give us life. But in the midst of that, we're living in paradise lost. We're living in a broken world. When sin entered the world, it caused a whole host of problems. Death, disease, disaster, depression, any kind of dysfunction you can imagine. There's going to be a day when it gets better. There, there's going to be a new day. But until that day, everywhere we look, until there's a new heaven and a new earth, everything is a mess. It's not the way it should be. And so Paul says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. This is the first of three groans in Romans 8. Do you know what a groan is? Did, did anybody groan before you got out of bed this morning? Let me see that hand. Yeah, the older you get, the more you groan. Sometimes in our, our bedroom, it'll be early morning, one of the alarms will go off, and one of us will make a noise, and the others will say, hey, are you okay? And we'll just have to say, yeah, I, I was just trying to move my arm. <laughs> just trying to move my leg. And you just, ah, you groan. This says, all of creation groans. What is a groan? It, it's not a specific word. It's, a, it's more of an emotional or an empathetic outburst because of this feeling that is rising within you, either emotionally or physically. You don't know what to say. You just let noise come out, and it's a groan. Why is all of creation groaning? Because everywhere you look, you see that things are not the way they should be. So we see this in our world. Ever since the fall, earthquakes natural disasters. We see it today, right? Wars, rumors of wars. Creation just, take our individual lives out of it. All of creation just seems to be in a mess. And what's the analogy? The analogy is childbirth. He says creation is going through these labor pains. What is he trying to tell us? Well, those of you that have experienced know that childbirth is a painful process. 
I remember when our, our first son, Micah, was to be born, and um, man, his due date was quickly approaching, and, and Kimberly was just getting more and more uncomfortable, and then that due, due date came, and it passed, and she was more and, and more uncomfortable, and we were just trying to do anything we could to help, help make that baby come on into this world, and, and so we had heard, you know, if it's a full moon, get out and walk in the moon, and that's going to make the baby come. So it was a full moon in Montgomery, Alabama, and we would go, and we'd walk around the block, and I can remember even saying, hey, lift up your shirt so the moon rays will get on it. Make that baby come. I mean, you want to do anything uh, to, to make that discomfort stop. <laughs> I can remember when Luke was born down at Sarasota Memorial, and again, the same thing. Now I had seen, this was the fourth time I was watching my wife in all of this pain, and I was trying to empathize with her, but I'm not sure she felt the empathy that, that I was trying to offer because she was feeling the pain. And, you know, I was in pain too. I was getting hungry. And so, um, and so I remember one day in Sarasota, I said, I'm hungry. And she said, go get something to eat. And so I, I said, all right. So I, I just walked across the street and she loves Mexican and I love Mexican and, and answered a prayer. There was a Tijuana Flats and I went in Tijuana Flats, but I wanted to be with my wife because she was in pain. And, and so I got my Tijuana Flats to go. And I remember, I'll never forget walking into that hospital room with that smelly Mexican food and my wife looking at me and in another otherworldly voice saying, get out of here. She was in pain. Now, why is he saying the pains of childbirth? Listen, when you're going through the pain of childbirth, you know that eventually you're going to be delivered from that. And when you're delivered from that, there's a new life on the other side. Do you see what Scripture is teaching you? All of creation is groaning like the pain of childbirth. And in the moment, it's painful, but a new life is coming. In the moment, it may feel like it's killing us, but a new life is coming, and he will make all things new. So you're not alone. All creation is groaning. But look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if you hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. He's saying all creation is groan, groaning. But make no mistake, I know it. We are groaning. You are groaning. Paul is saying, hey, I recognize you're walking through things that you don't understand, that you disagree with, that you wish were not the case, and so you groan because you don't know what else to do. So what do we do? Well, a farmer would understood this term he used, first fruits. The, the farmer would take that seed and, and put it in the ground, and he would till the ground and he would water the ground and eventually that seed would begin to produce a crop. And, and biblically speaking, the people who followed after God would, were taught that when that first fruit of the crop begins to come up, that was an opportunity for them to thank God for his presence and provision in their life. And so that's where we get the biblical principle of giving generously of the first fruit. So you recognize that God's the giver of all of it, but the best and the first I'm going to give to him. And by the way, that's why when we get paid, the first thing we do is make sure 
we've given back to the Lord through his local church. That's our first fruits. But what does it mean in this passage? He says, you have the first fruits of the Spirit in you. Well, he's reminding us what he would say later in Scripture. One day, we're going to see him face to face. But until that moment, guess what? You're not left alone. When you become a follower of Christ, what have we already learned? The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. That's the first fruits of God. We've got the presence of God with us. When we're groaning, when we don't know how we're going to make it, we have his presence. Do you understand how big a deal that is? Now, we're saved when we're justified. And when we're justified, we're saved from that penalty of sin. We're being saved as we're sanctified. And when we're sanctified, we're saved from the power of sin. One day, we will be saved and we'll be glorified. And when we're glorified, we're saved from the presence of sin. We're not glorified yet, but we're looking forward to that day. Until that day, we have the Holy Spirit within us telling us what's coming our way. If you're walking as a child of God with the Spirit of God, your communion with the Spirit in your life, whether it's through reading His Word, through worshiping Him in praise, through praying together, that communion of the Spirit what should be what keeps you going because you realize, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. But in the meantime, he says, we've got these unredeemed bodies, <laughs> How many of you know your body's unredeemed? Yeah. What am I saying? Well, I'm simply saying, look at me. It ain't getting any better. Now, you can go see a plastic surgeon. You can get all the fake help you want, but it ain't, it ain't getting any better. You came with an expiration date. And one day, this, what the Bible calls an earth tent, this physical body, it's going to cease to exist. Now, here's the good news. You're not a body. You understand that, right? Some of you, you spent way too much time in front of the mirror this morning because you think you're a body. You're not a body. You're a soul. And your soul is going to spend forever somewhere. But this body, it's unredeemed. Now, we're promised that one day we're going to get a redeemed body, just like Jesus. Our body will be redeemed. Thank you, Jesus. No more groaning because of the aches and the pains of the body, right? But until that day, we're wearing down. And so we've got to trust him. It's temporary. We can relate to these groans. We groan because of our aches and pains. We groan because of the heartaches and the pains that they cause. We groan, but if we're followers of Christ, he says, we wait. And we wait patiently because of the hope within us. So what's causing you to groan today? As a shepherd, I look out at you and I see some of the causes of the groans. You're battling cancer or another serious disease or you're struggling with grief because you've been through death of a loved one or you've got that prodigal child or you've had financial loss, you've had marital heartbreak. All of these a result of this broken world of, of paradise lost, of it not being the way we wish it were, all realities of life. And sometimes that causes us to get to a place where we don't even know what to say. We're at the end of our rope, we're barely hanging on. 
And we wonder if God even cares. So to let us know he does, Paul says, creation groans. The creatures groan. That's us. Now he's going to tell us that even the creator groans. Listen to this. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That's the third groan. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is one of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible. Did you catch what it says? We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit of God living within us takes over and begins to cry out to the Father on our behalf. That's good news, church. That's worth celebrating. God loves us so much that the Spirit of God in us cries out to the Father even when we don't know the words to say. One of my favorite preachers is Dr. Robert Smith. I heard him talking about this passage and he began to tell this story of um, his mentor. He said his mentor had taught him so much about how to be the man of God that he was, but his mentor had, had aged and now he had Alzheimer's and was not healthy. And He said a lot of their friends wanted to honor him, so they planned this big service just honoring the mentor and they got him there and they didn't even know if he was understanding because when he talked, everything was just kind of a mumble or it was jumbled, didn't make any sense. And at the end of the service, he was supposed to sing the song that he was known for. And they didn't know if he'd be able to do it, but they printed it in the bulletin. And at the end of the service, his wife walked him up onto the stage and, and she stood beside him. He just stood there and stared. Then she whispered into his ear, Precious Lord, and he began to smile, and he sang, Precious Lord. And she whispered, Take my hand. And he sang, Take my hand. And she whispered, Lead me on. Lead me on. She whispered, let me stand. Let me stand. And he began to sing. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on. To the light, precious Lord, take my hand, lead me home. And Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith said, 
He said, I can't help but think that's what the Holy Spirit does when we don't know the words to say. Sometimes he just utters to the Father on our behalf, but sometimes he puts the words in our heart. He puts the song back in our heart. He gives us the joy in the moment. When we don't know the words to say, we don't know the prayers to pray, the Holy Spirit of God will take our groan and meet it with his groan, and he will give us a song of hope. And how does this help us? It helps us because he knows our heart. That's what it says. He who searches the heart. God knows what you need. He's sovereign. He's not caught off guard by the crazy circumstances in your life. He's never going to say, I can't believe that happened. What are we going to do now? And he knows the mind of God. And he knows the will of God. All that's right here in this verse. And because he knows your heart and and he knows the mind of God and, and he knows the will of God, he's moving in your life to bring you into right relationship with him. All that, all that simply means we can trust him. Right, church? You can trust him. Say, I can trust him. Now, that's the context of Romans 8, 28. It's not meant to be just some encouraging statement that you see on a painting on the wall. In the context of the groanings of all creation and the groanings of creatures like us and the groanings of the Spirit of God, it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. When we don't think God makes sense, what do we do? Well, we hold on to what we know. That's what it says. We know. And that word know means with confidence, with certainty. This is not, well, I don't know, maybe. I, could, could God come through? I'm not, I'm not sure. No, we know. What do we know? I love how John Stott, he, he says, these are unshakable convictions. We know, first of all, that God is at work. And friend, whatever you're facing, God's at work in your life. You just need to see where is he at work and get in on it. Join him in his work. But secondly, he says, God is at work for your good. Just think about that. God is at work for your good. Doesn't say for your comfort. God never promises your comfort. Doesn't say for your prosperity. Some of you need to call into one of those television preachers and tell them, doesn't say that. But it does say he's working for your good. God is at work. He's at work for your good. He's at work for your good in all things. Say all things. Do you know even the negative things in your life can be used for positive purposes when they're in the hands of God? There's a lot of things in my life I'd say I'd give anything if I could get in a time machine and go back in time and undo some of the decisions I've made or some of the pain I've caused. But... I wouldn't give anything for what God's done as he's brought me through it. I'm a better person. I'm I'm more like Jesus. I've I've fellowshiped with him in my sufferings. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about all these things he's been through. Do you remember? He says, I've worked much harder and been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked and besides everything else, I face the daily pressures of the concern for all you church people. That's what he says. Sound like an easy life? But it's this guy that says God is at work for your good in all things. Then God is at work for your good in all things to those who love him. This, uh, this shouldn't surprise you, but God wants you to love him. That's what he desired. He said, what do I have to do for God? You got to love him. It's in the Old and New Testament, the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We say it here at Mission Hill. Love God passionately. And when you make a determination, I'm going to love God with all that I am, here's the promise. He's working together for your good in all things. He's working together. God is at work for your good in all things. And then he says, if you're a lover of God... You're called for his purposes. So you want to look at everything you're facing and saying, God, what are, what are you bringing about in the midst of this season of trial? That's what this passage is teaching us about suffering. So what it does is it also exposes some wrong thinking. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer, he pointed out some of the myths that are busted by this passage of Scripture. Number one, this myth, suffering can be avoided. It can't. Boy, I wish it could. But I'm looking out at my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know what so many of you have been through. Things that are unexplainable. Things that cause us to say why. The truth is, according to Jesus, in this world you will have trouble. But have no fear, for he has overcome the world. As someone said, there will be no crown wearers in heaven that haven't been first cross bearers on earth. Sometimes you have to pick up your cross and follow him. It's a myth to think that suffering can be avoided. It's a myth to say where there's suffering, there must be sin. And some of you have even been in a church where they taught you that. And I, I, I apologize. That's not scriptural. Now, don't get me wrong. Your sinful choices can cause suffering, right? If you left this place and, and you get intoxicated and then you get in your car, you could cause all kind of suffering for yourself and for others. There can be practical consequences to our sinful decisions that cause us to hurt. But nowhere in Scripture does it say every time you suffer, it's because of sin in your life. In fact, Jesus says to the contrary. They approached a blind man one day in the street. They said, who sinned, his mother or father? And, and Jesus made it clear, this is not a sinful issue. This is, this is a broken world issue. Some of the pain we suffer is because we live in this broken world. Don't buy into that myth. The third myth, there's always a silver lining behind dark clouds. Let me tell you how church people say this. And some of you have been hurt by this. 
Well, God did this for a reason. Raise your hand if you've ever been told something like that in your life. You're going through something you don't understand. Well, God did that for a reason. Here's what that presumes. It presumes God's a puppet master that's causing everything in this world. And we've already established some of the brokenness in this world happens because paradise is lost. Because all creation is groaning. And if all creation is groaning, we're going to groan. And when we're groaning, sometimes we need the Spirit to groan on our behalf. Sometimes it's just plain hard on this side of heaven. And we have to trust the Lord. Now it's gotten kind of heavy in here, I can tell. So maybe I just need to remind you of one of my favorite stories. It's about this little bird named Chirpy. He was a sparrow. And he was kind of a stubborn sparrow. He lived up north, but he decided, unlike all his sparrow friends, he was comfortable. He did not want to leave home just because it was winter. And so Chirpy decided not to go south. He decided to stay up north. But Chirpy encountered a problem. The cold came and the snow came. And he began to freeze, both inside and out. In fact, Chirpy's wings began actually got ice on them, and they were frozen. And when Chirpy's wings were frozen, he realized something. A bird can't fly with frozen wings, so plat, he fell down to the ground. Luckily, he survived. He thought he was going to die. He was laying on the ground frozen, couldn't move a wing, and he looked around, and then he thought he was just about to get murdered because he realized he had landed in a pasture, and there was a big old cow coming his way. He thought, sure, that cow was going to step on him. But that cow came right toward Chirpy. And then he passed right over Chirpy. But as that cow passed over Chirpy, he did the unthinkable. He plopped right on Chirpy. A big pile of cow manure right on top of Chirpy. Now you say, how terrible. But Chirpy was actually grateful. He could have died in that moment. And in fact, because of what he was up under, the circumstances he was up under, his wings began to thaw out. Things were a little warmer <laughs> up under that manure. And he, th he thought things were great. In fact, he began to clean off his wings and he began to get out of that manure. And he began to sing. He began to chirp. Chirpy had a song in his heart. And then the old farm cat came out of nowhere. That farm cat came up to Chirpy. He finished cleaning him off. And in one bite, he ate Chirpy for lunch. That's a sad story. Everybody say, oh. But there's some life lessons in that story. Number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Just think about that one. Number two, not everyone who gets it off is your friend. <laughs> And number three, when you find yourself in a whole heap of trouble like your pile of manure, sometimes it's, sometimes it's helpful just to keep your little chirper short, shut <laughs> and wait until the end of the story and sing the song that God puts in your heart. I, hey, listen, whether you laughed at that or not, you need to know something. Sometimes life is just tough. But God's working a song in your life. 
Let me give you three takeaways. When you're in the midst of the pain, when you experience pain, I want you to remember this. Remember God's promise. Remember the first verse. This suffering of the present pales in comparison to the promise of future glory. Regardless of what you face, this is not all there is. There's always hope. Say there's always hope. And sometimes the greater the pain, the greater the glory. Number two, when I experience pain, I need to learn to rely on his power. Right? What did it say? It said, when you are weak, that's when the spirit begins to cry out on your behalf. That goes against everything we're taught in society. We're taught to never show our weaknesses. But as the follower of Christ, we learn that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. God doesn't promise to keep us from harm, but he does promise to deliver us. And sometimes he delivers us from the storm. Sometimes he delivers us in the storm. Sometimes he delivers us through the storm. Warren Wiersbe said, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostats. His loving heart knows how much and how long. Finally, when I experience pain, I rest in his purpose. This is a hard one. But I just rest in that reality that God's working. He's not caught off guard. And he'll use this for my good and for his glory. Now, one of the best biblical examples we see of that is Genesis 50, 20. Joseph looks at his brothers, and what does he say? You intended this for evil, but what? God meant it for good. But you know what's interesting? Joseph didn't say that when his brothers threw him in the pit. He didn't say that when that crazy woman, Potiphar, was running after him and accusing him of sexual assault. He didn't say that when they threw his rear end in prison. But about 20 years later, looking in the rearview mirror, he was able to say, you meant this for evil, but God, God worked it out for good. And then I think about those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Man, in the, in the front of them, everything looked like all hope was lost. Their friend had died. Their cause would now be forgotten. The power of God they had seen in their midst must be gone. And then a stranger walks up beside them. And it says, their hearts were strangely warmed. Because they could look back and see, oh, what God was doing then has impact on my now. And my forever. One of the greatest stories I've heard of this in modern history is a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. I remember hearing about her when I was a teenager. As a young lady, she was in a diving accident. You may know her story. Her neck was broken. She became a paraplegic and was in a wheelchair all of her life. She became a great teacher and a writer and even an artist. Maybe you have some of her art in your home. But she was talking about this one day, about how God is always working and she said this, I sure hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven. 
Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope I can bring it and and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hand, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I'll say, Jesus, you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we'll have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It would have never happened had you not given me the bruising and the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we've ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. And then she says, I find it so poignant that finally, finally, at the point when I have the use of my arms and I could wipe away my own tears, I won't have to. Because God will wipe them away for me. (laughs) I love it. Because she goes on to say, and then I'll turn to Jesus and say, you can throw that wheelchair in hell. (laughs) And maybe that's the way you feel about what you're going through or what you've gone through. God, man, get that away from me. Okay. You can acknowledge that. But then step back. And realize the one you're leaning on. And remember what you know. And we know that our God will work all things together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's bow our heads and pray. If you're a Christ follower and you've got that confidence today, praise the Lord. You, you, either, you either have just come out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you may not realize that you're, you're headed into a storm and you'll need this spiritual truth. Here's what I'm begging of you today. Lean in to God and His strength. That area where you're finding it hard to trust when it doesn't seem like he makes sense. Acknowledge that and then lean into him. And if you don't know the words to say, just cry out to the Spirit of God living in you and say, all right, this is one of those times I need you to take over. And just rest in the promise that God really is working for your good and his glory. But somebody's hearing this and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ and and the truth is not only can life be hell but the Bible talks about a real place called hell where those who don't have a relationship with Christ will spend forever God does not want that for you or anyone else but because he's a just and a fair God because he's a holy and a righteous God if your sin has not been dealt with you will have to deal with the punishment. The good news is, as we've said, God demonstrates his love for us and that even though we're still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So our responsibility is just to look to Christ and to what he's accomplished for us. To trust him. Maybe you need to cry out to him right now. Maybe you need to pray a simple prayer like this. Oh God, I need you. Jesus, save me. Maybe you need to pray that. Jesus, save me. I I know I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I believe you died for me. And I believe you're alive today. I've been depending on my own strength. I've been living life my way. But I'm ready to trust in you. Come into my life, Lord. Take control. Right here. Right now. Save me. Do me a favor. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. But if you just prayed that prayer with me, right where you're sitting, would you just lift your hand up? You just prayed that prayer beginning that relationship with Christ. I want to say you did that today. Welcome to God's family if you did that. It's the most important thing you could ever do. Welcome to God's family. Just a moment, I'm going to tell you another way you can share that, that great news with us. Father, I, I thank you today because you give us hope from your word. No matter what we're facing, you are with us. We can trust you, Lord. You are good and you're doing good. We praise you, Father. God, I pray that even as we sing this song of worship, even in this moment, that you would demonstrate to us today your presence in a tangible way. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.